Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Connor Balthazar. And today we are going to be previewing the upcoming matchup between your Kansas State Wildcats and the Louisiana State University Tigers in the Texas Bowl down in Houston. But before we go into that general matchup, we also have a bit of big news that we feel the need to talk about right now outside of our normal time to talk about it because that is how massive this news is. And it is news that comes from the transfer portal. And I would honestly argue that it is even bigger news than when Adrian Martinez officially committed to the Kansas State Wildcats. And that is something that my good friend Connor here will cover. Yeah, so the catch just landed transfer linebacker Brandon Jennings from the University of Maryland. He had numerous offers coming out of Maryland. Michigan was one of them, as well as other schools like Michigan State, Arizona State, Indiana, NC State, Georgia Tech, South Carolina. The point is, he's really good. He was arguably the best linebacker on Maryland last year until he got hurt. And that was as a true freshman as well. He was a four-star out of high school, and he's also a four-star transfer. This is the linebacker transfer that has been so evasive for the staff thus far. I don't want to get into him too much just because that's not the subject of this episode. All I'll say is that I am immensely excited about Brandon Jennings. He is he might be the best transfer that the staff has landed. Adrian Martinez is maybe a more impactful transfer, at least immediately because of his position. But Brandon Jennings is a guy that he will probably start day one, and that will be as a true sophomore next year. So he might be more talented, and this defense is looking pretty It's looking pretty good for next year. Yeah, and the only thing that I will say on this matter until the episode actually devoted to recapping the entire week and recruiting, which we'll have, you know, we may have a little bit to cover, given the fact that we haven't recorded, excuse me, in a, in a couple of weeks. But just picture a defense with Khalid Duke, Nate Matlick, Felix Andy Uzama, Echo Boydo, Julius Brents, Daniel Green, and Jennings. That is an absolutely salty front six. The literal only pieces missing are we probably need two transfer safeties, and I would love a instant impact transfer nose tackle. But other than that, pass rush is fine. Linebacking core I feel great about now, especially because Jennings is a three, he has three years left. Like, and he still has a redshirt available as well if we need it. And that, that front six is looking good. There's some depth issues here and there, but this staff, they have officially proven to me that they... They are nails in the transfer portal. Because this was a this was according to twenty four seven the highest rated linebacker transfer. Again, I don't want to get into him too much, but the point is that he's really good. Yeah, and you know, I, it, why bother winning recruiting battles in the high school realm when you can just win them in the transfer portal? That's all I'm saying. But yeah, that's partially yep. that's mostly a joke. That's mostly a joke. <clears throat> but. Anyway, with that out of the way, that massive bit of news, we can start talking about the matchup between K-State and LSU. 
And this is obviously going to be a big game for bragging rights just going into it because, you know, SEC fans and also the rest of the United States, I mean, just the Big 12. Yeah, you know, if, you, if you've ever talked to an SEC fan, you know why just about everyone else roots against them. Yeah, they're, they're fairly unbearable. Uh, partially contributes to my hate of the Liberty Bowl. 2015 Liberty Bowl case savers Arkansas. Arkansas fans just plain sucked. They were awful. Hate them. And the SEC. They're just annoying. Yeah. But with that being said, let's go into the 2021 stats. And we probably should have figured this one out beforehand. But which of your columns is messed up? The offensive or defensive ones? Because we're recording this virtually. It's just one straight column. Okay. So I will... Hi, Maple. I will cover offensive stats, and you can cover defensive stats, which starts at the second points per points game. Points per game. Yep. Okay. I, I figured it out using my gargantuan brain. Massive brained individuals that we are. But Yes, sir. Let's dive straight into LSU stats. They are a 6-6 six and six team with a 3-5 and five conference record that is rushed for 1,312 rushing yards at a clip of 3.2 per attempt, nine rushing touchdowns, and the big one, the majority of where their offense operates is through the air, with 3,170 passing yards at a clip of 7.34 for attempt, nine passing interceptions to 29 touchdowns and a completion percentage of 59%. In terms of other statistics, on third down, they convert at a 37.4% rate, which is 88th in FBS out of, I believe, 130 schools now. And then where they rank even worse than that is in their sacks allowed, which, if you believe the stereotype about the SEC, should not be what's happening, because they've given up 38 total sacks, which is 115th in FBS. In terms of red zone percentage, they score 81.8% of the time with a 57% touchdown percentage, which is a tie for 84th in FBS, scoring a total of 27.08 points per game, 325 total points for. So, as I mentioned earlier, this is certainly a team that wants to throw the ball around, which is probably a remnant from the old Joe Burrow days. I say old, it's two years old now as opposed to the SEC's stereotype of just running the rock right down your throat. And they're a pretty effective passing team when they have the right quarterback, but we'll get into that one a little bit later. Yeah, defensively, points per game, they're giving up 25.33 per game. That's good for 59th in FBS. A total of 304 points against them. And passing yards, they're giving up 2,819 total yards through the air on the season, 75th in the country 26 touchdowns against them 1647 rush yards against them and 13 rushing touchdowns defensively in the red zone they give up a score 85.7 percent of the time and 71.4 percent of the time they're giving up a touchdown which is tied for 88th in the country not great interceptions they have eight of them fumbles they have five of them sacks they have 36 of them which is tied for 20th pretty solid they have a turnover differential of minus one so defensively generally average to below average in some of these statistical categories although that doesn't tell the entire story from what we know like for example defensive backs 
incredibly athletic, even if they aren't necessarily always getting the job done. But some of these stats aren't the best. A lot of passing yards given up against them, which seems counterintuitive to their defensive backs being so good. But Derek Stingley has been hurt for a chunk of the season. He's projected to be a, I believe, a top five pick in the draft. So if he chooses to declare, which if he chooses, I imagine he will. So yeah, it's rare with someone as high draft stock as he does who would if he chose to came back. But yeah, defensively they're just kind of okay, and in terms of their schedule. They opened up, we'll split this at the Kentucky game. You cover everything after? Yep. And we're keeping the Alley Cat tradition of figuring these things out on the show rather than beforehand. But the first game that they played was UCLA, and they had pretty big expectations going into this year. And then UCLA proceeded to humble them with a loss in at UCLA, which they lost 27-38, to LSU did. They followed that up with a victory against McNeese State, 34-7, then a victory against Central Michigan, 49-21, beat Mississippi State, 28-25, lost to Auburn, 24-19, and then lost to Kentucky, 21-42. So the beginning of their season was either blowouts or close losses, which, you know, that's not necessarily... They're, they weren't very good at winning the close game on the aggregate, except for the Mississippi State game. And that's a problem that, uh, well, I don't want to spoil what happens next, but it may continue. Yeah, uh, one of the, at the time, this was a massive bright spot for their season, was the win over Florida, 49-42. to However, Florida really did not finish the year very well. They finished 6-7 and with a bowl loss to UCF. And it's the same story for a lot of these other schools they lose to, like Kentucky at the time. Like, they still finished well, but Auburn at the time, when they played them, they were ranked 22nd. They finished 6-7. and seven. But following this Florida game, they lose 31-17 to Ole Miss, who just lost to Baylor. Uh, Bama beats them by 6, which, I mean, LSU, they always pull out all the stops for the Bama game, no matter how their year is going. They always give them a great fight. And then Arkansas, they lose by 3, 16-13. Very good Arkansas squad this year. Then they have a game against Louisiana Monroe. They went 27-14 to in that game. And they finished out the year with a 27-24 victory over Texas A&M at home to close out Ed Orgeron's career at LSU, leaving only the bowl game against Kansas State. Yeah. And something that's worth noting uh, for the for LSU is it's not like they played absolutely nobody because at the time of each of their being played the combined records of every single team included 45 victories at the time of each and every single game being played that's not the aggregate record but that's a pretty good ratio of teams that you're facing so it's not like they were playing nobodies and they were playing people close this is not a team that you can really underestimate yeah, it would be a major mistake to underestimate LSU because they're 6-6. Six and six. Now, there are reasons that you could potentially look past them or at the very least feel good about our chances, but even then I'm still not fully comfortable with this game until it's all said and done. But yeah, a very interesting season from LSU. Uh, save for the uh, big win against Florida, or at least it was a big win at the time. 
they would have had a six-game losing streak in the middle of the year against all SEC opponents that were also all ranked when they played. Although, as you know, Auburn, Florida weren't all that down the stretch. Yeah, absolutely. But now let's get into the film notes, starting with the offensive side of the ball. And starting with their play calling, like most college offenses, they're big fans of three and four wide receiver looks. And they employ a lot of the quick hitting concepts such as spacing or RPO action with slants. And they're not exactly a hurry-up offense. So think Texas Tech in terms of offensive play calling, but without the capacity or willingness to try and catch you off balance and try to keep pushing you while you're reeling. They also run the check-with-me system, meaning that they'll come up to the line and then look to the sidelines with a play call. And, Connor, how many times have you heard me complain about this system? (laughs) Uh, Several. And I also mentally complained about it a lot because that was the system that K-State ran under Bill Snyder in his second term, and it resulted in a lot of delay of games for us. So, Yeah. I have different reasons for disliking it. I will not get into it today. Maybe that's an Ask the Aggieville Alley Cats question. Hint, hint. (laughs) Wink. Wink. They seem to... Back to LSU's offense. They seem to use motion at least once every single play, most of the time for coverage indications, and they are a pretty balanced team in terms of running and passing with their play calls. However, passing is infinitely more effective. Despite this, they're not afraid to run or pass in just about any situation. So predictability is not necessarily in their wheelhouse. You can't just know a specific situation is coming and then deploy a dime defense. You have to be on your toes for just about anything that they're going to do. Because I think the split is pretty close to 50-50. It might be 48-52 in terms of pass to run. But either way, that's their offensive play calling. I'll let you take the next two, because the next two are like really big question marks. Yeah. Uh, So, of course, we have quarterback first from offensive film. And for those that have been following, even casually the storylines heading to the game they know that quarterback is a massive question mark for lsu going to this game because their starting quarterback max johnson entered the transfer portal and while he did withdraw his name from the portal and announce his intention to return to lsu entering the portal does relinquish your eligibility for the remainder of the season so he cannot play in this game and then i believe also their backup uh also entered yeah that would be Mr. Miles Brennan, and then that leaves Garrett Nussmeyer, but he is a true freshman. He's only attempted 57 passes, two touchdowns, two interceptions, 50.9% completion percentage. So nothing like spectacular from Garrett Nussmeyer. Granted, he's very experienced, but the big thing is that he's played four games so if he was to play a fifth game, that would burn his red shirt and possibly hurt LSU for the future. And right now, uh, LSU is trying to get a waiver from the NCAA to get it to where he could play in this game and not burn his red shirts. And they apparently have received a result from the NCAA uh, or a ruling on if he can play or not, but they're not revealing the results. So we don't know if it's going to be Nussmeyer. Now, if it's not Nussmeyer, 
then that's when the question marks really start to fly around because then you're looking at uh, walk-on quarterbacks. There's been rumors flying around of a one of the receivers played quarterback in high school, and he would just run wildcat the entire game with maybe a few passes sprinkled in. Uh, it's huge, huge, huge question mark that we probably aren't going to know the answer to until the first snap for LSU's offense. So yeah, and the the only thing that I would really note on Nussmeyer is that what I've seen from him was fine. He got the majority of his playing time during the Arkansas game when Johnson got hurt, but he was fine. Like he was inoffensive, but he wasn't good. He he's not Jaron Lewis level bad, but he's like. Probably around where Will was his freshman year, which is a mid mid quarterback. And yeah, it, the only thing of note is that he's the son of the current Cowboys quarterbacks coach. So technically, he will be good, as in his technique. <laughs> yeah, it's just a huge question mark. Uh, I I. At this point, LSU probably doesn't even know what's going to happen. Like They may still be deciding, especially if Nussmeyer didn't get the waiver. They will probably have a very difficult decision to make between starting a walk-on or starting somebody that might be a, more, a better athlete but has not played quarterback since high school. So it's going to be very interesting to see the result of that. Nussmeyer getting to play does significantly raise LSU's chances in this game, although they still aren't zero without him because we did see what K-State was able to do against the Wildcat defensively against Texas, which wasn't great. Although hopefully with a game of preparation under their belt, as well as knowing about the quarterback troubles ahead of time, they should be more prepared, but knock on wood. But now we can move on to running back, which is just as large of a question mark, just, although it's not as... Just read the bold part first. Yeah. Um, there's a whole write-up here about Tyrion Davis-Price, but he's declared for the draft <laughs> ever since that was the, written. The day after we wrote this up, he declared for the draft. Yeah, Tyrion Davis-Price on the year uh, was quite good. 211 rushing yards, just over 1,000 yards at 1,004, 4.8 yards a carry and six touchdowns. But it does not matter because he will not be playing in this game. So... You look at the next leading rusher, that is Corey Kiner. He has 65 carries, 271 yards on the ground, 4.2 per carry, and two touchdowns. He's a freshman from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, the backup running backs at LSU, they're not particularly remarkable, although a lot of that is because LSU used Terrian Davis-Price as the feature back for the entire season. Corey Kiner... A uh, good change of pace guy, but we're yet to see him in the main back role. And it's not clear if his skill set is going to translate to that, especially against a K-State defense that, for the most part, has been very effective against the run this year. So, you know, he's a shifty back and whatnot. He's a good receiving back, but the shiftiness, that's not really LSU style. But we will still have to look out for him in the passing game. So... 
some interesting situations in the backfield for LSU going to this game. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to remind everybody that I don't think Corey Kiner is nearly as good as what we faced earlier in the year, like Brees Hall. He's not Brees Hall. He's not Ebner. He's not Abram Smith. And we held all of those guys. Okay, we held everyone not named Brees Hall to a pretty reasonable amount. So I, yeah. I, the running game is not something to overly worry about, which we'll get into with the offensive line. But now let's talk about the pass catchers, the wide receivers. They are led statistically by someone who is injured. Number one, Kayshawn Butte, who led in yards and touchdowns. Number 80, Jack Betch, or Beck, leads in catches. And number 10, Jare Jenkins, leads in yards per catch. Now, Butte was lost halfway through the season and is still their leader in yards and touchdowns. That's good, it seems. Yeah, I, so For him, yeah, Butte not for the team. Good. Butte is very good, but that kind of tells you everything else about their receiving core as well. Jack Beck, or Betch, I still have no idea. I imagine it's Beck, because it's C-H without a T. Beck would make sense, because Betch is kind of a strange last name. It also would make it way too close to Belch, so... Yeah, or another word, but he's he's the he's the slot receiver. He's the Julian Edelman. He's the Cole Beasley. Everyone else can figure out what archetype I'm going for there, but he's the high volume guy with average speed who's smart enough to find holes in coverage and is reliably enough has re- reliable enough hands to where he's not going to make you cringe whenever he touches the ball. But he's also not that alpha dog receiver. If anyone who's left on the receiving core fits that role, it's much more to Ray Jenkins. But he has an odd tendency to body catch instead of extending his hands. Meaning that he doesn't fit that alpha archetype in the contested catch realm. But whenever he gets the opportunity to body catch, in other words on slants or in routes when he can actually box someone out as opposed to having to climb the ladder and make a catch with his hands. He can catch through contact pretty well in the RPO game. So Julius Brents or Echo Boido will have to probably be on J. Ray Jenkins or Joe Ray. <sighs> Me and names, man, I swear. But I feel like it's Joe Ray. Joe Ray? Probably Joe Ray. Joe Ray makes sense. Yeah. But the receiving group is a freakishly athletic group of receivers, even outside of those top three options, or I guess top two options that'll be available for the bowl game. But it's a group to watch, but it's a group that I feel like we can contain because of how they've sort of taken a step back, despite how good their passing offense has been throughout the entire year. Yeah. Uh, Not sure what to make. Of the receiver core just because like you said there's no uh Butte in this group and Butte was just far and away the best receiver in this core like not even close but Beck and Jenkins are still like you still have to heed them you still have to give them the respect because they're athletic enough that they they can still burn you regardless but the tight ends are an interesting story as well mainly because they are not much of a threat through the air whatsoever. There's two guys, number 87, Cole Taylor. 
he had six catches for 68 yards and one touchdown this entire year. Really big guy, though, 6'7", 243. But then you have uh, the other guy, Jack Mashburn, who is kind of the opposite in terms of size, at least. He's 6'2", 218. Very, very undersized tight end. And he only had three catches for 51 yards this season. Uh, Mashburn, he's a solid blocker. Uh, he does. He's not like a true blocking tight end, uh, but he does fit the definition of H-back more so than tight end, especially in terms of stature. Uh, reminiscent of like Josiah DeGuara, at least in terms of his size on the Packers. But Cole Taylor, he fits the size of a traditional tight end, but he still does run a lot of that H-back position. So, Yeah. One of their favorite play calling concepts, which it, it baffles me as to why the tight ends don't get as much room or receive receptions as they do is they enjoy running. I just call it the Shanahan pass because that's kind of who uses it as the feature of their offense. And that's the counter punch to an inside zone split play where you've seen it. If you've watched an NFL game in the past, like five years, you've seen this play where you have a tight end or an H-back working across the field into the flats, and then you have a crossing route above it, and then like a comeback or something above that. And it's just a very simple read. They run that play a lot, but they very rarely throw it to the tight end because the crossing route is almost always open, and that's just kind of by virtue of the play. Yeah, I, speaking of the NFL doing that, I'm pretty sure I saw the Cowboys do that like three times today, so... Yeah, it's, it's become one of the most overused plays, but it's overused because it works. <laughs> yeah, it's like, if it works, you might as well use it. But yeah. it is interesting that they use it so much as a tight end designed to play, but then they just kind of don't throw it to the tight ends, which if you can get more yardage from it, might as well get more yardage from it. But you know, the tight ends, they're they're not slouches, but like they, they haven't produced this year. so Yeah. So here's a part that kind of makes me sad because offensive line, if you've listened to one of these before, you know that offensive line is one of my favorite positions to talk about. But there isn't much to say about this unit, honestly. I, and, that, and that kind of makes me sad. But other than that, statistically, they're one of the worst units in FBS, at least in terms of pass protection. We don't subscribe to PFF because neither of us have a spare like $400 lying around. Unfortunately, maybe someday. Maybe someday. Not, but even not then, I, 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 even if I have it, I don't know if I'm throwing it at PFF. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd rather throw it at a SIS or Sports Info Solutions, but that's that's almost like a thousand dollars. But anyway, that's maybe someday if we become a big podcast, bigger than we already are, which is surprisingly big. But that's neither here nor there. But the number one note is this unit as a whole. They don't handle stunts or additional pressure very well. They're kind of the anti-Baylor in that sense, is that Baylor's big calling card was that they were all big, but they had excellent unit cohesion. They all knew what the other was going to do on every single play. So if one person trips or misses a block, the other person is right there next to them, making sure that the play doesn't explode because of it. This is kind of the opposite of LSU. They just don't have that, that unit cohesion yet. And I think it could be due to the fact that a lot of them don't have the most starting experience. But 
that is that's just working from memory and i could very well be wrong but their starting lineup looks like number 72 at left tackle garrett dellinger his pass protection is really mediocre but that could be because he wasn't the blindside protector most of the year so he could have very well just gotten lazy and not had to the same reason why sometimes you see right tackles get somewhat lazy with their footwork and their hand placement and pass protection because Max Johnson is a left-handed quarterback so the left side of the line is the line side of the line he is facing so there's less overall pressure on that side of the line because you can see what's happening over there then left guard is number 70 Ed Ingram and the man is slow even by lineman standards he also has a tendency to whiff on blocks when pulling and it's if he's not squared up you kind of can just duck under him which on one hand it's very funny <laughs> it's it's very funny there's one play in particular i'm thinking about the texas a&m game where a linebacker just started blitzing him and then he literally tried to hug the linebacker but failed to clothesline him and just like slapped him in the stomach <laughs> it was a man it was a very funny play but other than that liam shanahan number 56 is their center and this is where I just stopped having things to say about them. The guy, me, who overanalyzes everything, I have nothing to say about these next three linemen. They're not good pass blockers. They're mediocre at best run blockers. This is going to be one of the rare occasions to where I am fully willing to cyberbully the SEC on their line. Because, yeah, line play in the SEC typically is pretty good. But LSU just does not have that elite offensive line in fact they're probably a very mid offensive line are they the worst offensive line we've seen this year no that honor belongs to KU followed closely by if we're just counting individuals the right tackle at Texas Tech or maybe it was the left I think it was the left tackle it was the left poor guy poor well, he, guy. well at the very least he was the one that gave up the safety to Felix and Enrique Uzama <laughs> poor guy poor guy he was so bad, he almost single-handedly uh, changed our season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we thank you for your service, Texas Tech. Appreciate it. Tackle. Appreciate it. But the other two guys on the line are number 58, Cardell Thomas, and number 76 at right tackle, Austin DeCullis. Uh Awesome first name, but other than that, nothing really of note. And that's the offensive side of the ball. And overall, this is a unit when I was watching film that I was not overly scared for. And there wasn't really any one piece in particular that I was scared about, which I can't say for just about every single other team that we face this year. Every single team that we face, with the rare exception of SIU, had one player in particular that either became a problem or was a problem going into this game. And I don't see that on offense for LSU, which now that I say that, one of the players is going to go off for 500 yards. Shame. Yeah, well, you had to say it, so, you know, it's it's a real shame that Jack Mashburn is going to have 300 receiving yards in this game, but... <laughs> Jake Mashburn at quarterback. Jack Mashburn. That would be something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but you, you yeah, we, yeah, we can move it to the defense now. Uh, yeah. the, they're, they're in the similar alignment uh, to K-State, like, like pretty basically everybody else nowadays, the third three three five. Uh, I guess KU and UCF don't run the three three five, but 
it is what it is. Almost everybody else does. When they're forced into a, ben- a base defense, they'll play with five people on the line. They have a nose tackle, uh, some four or five techs on the defensive line, and they have some linebackers play on the outside shoulder of the tackles. They occasionally switch up and play a four down front, uh, and their entire defense is at their best when they're allowed to play fast, brain off football. They switch their safety alignment up a bit, but we have not seen them go three high. I'm sure Ace is very yeah, happy about let's that. Let's go! Let's go! <laughs> and then <laughs> defensively, they're primarily held up by a few main playmakers, like one Derek Stingley and then one Damone Clark. However, they both have declared, or Damone Clark has declared for the draft. Stingley is hurt and likely declaring for the draft. So we will not be seeing either of them. Damone Clark was sensational this year at 135 solo tackles, three pass deflections, and a pick. And Derek Stingley is Derek Stingley, borderline household name already. So, and then of course the run defense—it's uh, a little porous, you it's might back. say. The word is back, boys. Porous has returned, uh, and then they prefer man to zone coverage as well as a squad which when you have the level of athletes that lsu has in their secondary you know you're going to feel a little bit more inclined to run man yeah but into the individual units you will cover linebackers and defensive backs because again so little to say but in terms of defensive line they're led at least statistically by number eight, B.J. Ajulari, and number zero, Mason Smith. But the fun fact is Ojulari's sack total of six is mostly a mirage because he only got one and a half in the last six games. And the same is actually with Mason Smith, who only had one in his last six games. But the above does not make Ojulari bad, and it's very far from it. He is kind of like Wyatt Hubert in that he's basically just a motor that happens to have legs. And he plays ridiculously fast on every single snap. And I'm not even talking about fast relative to his size. No, he's just fast. He's fast enough to run down running backs on sweeps from the opposite side of the sweep. With very little delay from the running back. Oh. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is very much concerning. But, yeah, that is... uh... It's a fun comparison to Wyatt Hubert. <laughs> Where, yeah, you're right. Uh, Wyatt Hubert, you know, great, great player. But 90% of the reason that he was able to produce the way he was is because he was a V8 Hellcat that had legs instead of wheels. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, weirdly enough, the D line doesn't have that one dominant piece. But they're very similar to Oki State in that it's the unit cohesion that makes them very effective at pass rushing. So basically, they don't have one single person who's going to ruin your day, but they have a bunch of people who, when working together, will make your day very difficult. And I honestly think that that's almost worse and scarier because, well... If it's just one dude, you can scheme around that one dude. You can scheme up protections to make sure he doesn't hurt you. 
if the entire team is working together and the entire line has a plan, you just kind of have to hope your plan's better. <laughs> yeah, uh, the unit cohesion on defensive line. That does scare me a little bit because, like you said, they're very similar to Oklahoma State in that regard, Oklahoma State. They were very, very good uh, as a defensive line, uh, subtly good because of their dedication to the team effort rather than individual glory. But we can move to linebacker from that. Uh, Their leading tackler, Damone Clark, he has opted out and declared for the draft. So it's a huge loss for them because, like I said before, 135 solo tackles to go with 55 or 58 assists and 5.5 sacks. Excellent, excellent season. So kind of understand why he opts out of a bowl game when you're 6-6. Six and six. Like, I get it. Sucks, but I get it. Um, other than that, a lot of these linebackers are very typical SEC linebackers where they're just elite athletes, just unbelievable athletes. But their technical skill is not the best. Uh, they're shockingly good at man coverage, but a lot of that is because they just play like chickens with their heads cut off. They are unbelievable athletes that run around everywhere. Their speed and the linebacking core is excellent. Something that K-State really wants going forward. But our linebackers are also very good technically. So hopefully we can marry a couple of those concepts. But yeah, a few other guys to look out for. You have Micah Baskerville. He's a senior. 83 tackles on his own to go with three pass deflections and a Baskerville opt out. Did he really? I think so. Hang on. Well, other than that, I am really struggling to find other linebackers. Yeah, everybody else is just safeties and whatnot. So, who's to say who's playing linebacker for LSU in this? bowl game anybody's guess truly keep but, talking and i'll verify real fast yeah it's not damone clark it's not micah baskerville but regardless of that you know that lsu is the type of squad that even if those guys opt out and declare for the draft they're gonna have four and five star guys behind them because yeah, that is, is an opt out yep that's the nature of lsu football because they just have a rolling talent well from Louisiana. I mean, they're in one of the best recruiting beds in the entire country. A massive chunk of their roster comes from from Louisiana. So they're always going to be good because they're getting the best talent from in-state in a talent-rich state. But linebackers, they're still going to be good. There's no clue who's playing. At least, I can't find them quickly. But yeah. <laughs> we can, yeah, we can move to defensive back, which, again, similar to linebackers, uh, led by Derek Stingley, but he is injured, unfortunately, has a foot injury, and he is in all likelihood going to declare for the draft. If he has not already, he had a sensational freshman season with 15 pass deflections and six interceptions as a true freshman. Again, another Louisiana kid. But it's, it's, it's LSU, offensive backs. They're going to be good. They're going to be very athletic. Their man coverage across the board is pretty solid. Although, occasionally, their corners that are not Derek Stingley will have issues in off and bail coverages. Their zone discipline is also pretty good as they all cover players as opposed to grass, which is actually quite important, as I've heard. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 
the the big story is all the opt-outs because if you because I think what was what was the number? We had over a hundred players. They have like seventy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fifty-one scholarship players, I think, was the number. Yeah, K State. I think they brought their almost their entire roster with them to Texas and LSU. They are down to at time of recording fifty-one scholarship players and about seventy total, which last year now would have put them under the. Uh, minimum for playing a game due to COVID. So they would have been forced <laughs> to forfeit. But that doesn't exist this year. And credit to them, at least right now, they plan on playing the game. Who's to say what happens? UCLA canceled their game like two hours out. So this game might happen. They seem to want to play it, but never say never on this game. Like yeah. potentially just not happening, which would be very disappointing. I want to see Skyler Thompson get one more game. But, you know, control what you can control. Yeah. But. So now we can talk about the stories to watch going into this game. And the first story we have is just the opt-outs for LSU. Because K-State had no one opt-out, which is remarkable and shows that K-State has... When Kleiman says that he's built a good culture in just a year, and it's a complete turnaround from last year, he's not lying. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he's 100% telling the truth there because most of the guys that transferred, the exception of T. Denson, they were not getting a ton of playing time regardless. I guess uh, you can throw Mars Brown and Aaron Joe Irvin, but they're guys that they didn't leave because of bad blood. They're leaving because they want better playing time. And, like, I mean, Joe Irvin, Jacardier, right? They're playing behind Deuce Vaughn. They're in the same class. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I understand. But, but. It's absolutely remarkable that K-State, like you said, had no opt-outs in this game. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are draft prospects on this K-State team, but a lot of them are fringe. And having a good bowl performance could be something that puts them over the edge into getting drafted. Guys like Timmy Horn, that's a perfect candidate for what I'm thinking of with this. Uh, Skylar Thompson, he's the number 10 quarterback on Mel Kuyper's draft board. Really? Yeah. I was shocked when I heard that. But this is the sort of game that if he wants a razor's edge chance of getting drafted, he needs to ball out in this game, or at the very least have a solid game, as well as in the Senior Bowl, which he is participating in later. And just other guys like Daniel and Matsurbebe, Russ East. Those are guys that have an outside shot at getting drafted, but they need to show out in the game. And they have a lot of motivation. But these LSU guys are opting out. They're playing in the SEC. They're playing great teams. And they're also pretty much all elite athletes. So NFL scouts are aware of them already. So they're opting out because the bowl game just doesn't do anything for them, which does suck. But I also understand because, I mean, as we just saw with Matt Corral, like that, that hurts that hurts bad because you know, he goes out to play for his team but he gets hurt so you can't i don't blame the guys for staying out that's a conversation for a whole nother day though but tldr yeah. shut up kirk herb street yeah he's he really needs to stop talking <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he he has really he's been putting his foot in his mouth a lot recently but that's, old, that's again another old, conversation old, for another old, video old he, he, Basically, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but, a lot of stars out for yeah. LSU in this game. 
for for the opt outs just that just for notable ones, Damon Clark is gone. Tyrion Davis Price is gone. Trey Palmer entered the portal. Neil Farrell Jr. opted out. Um, their other linebacker, basically their entire linebacking core is out. I think half of their starting secondary is out. Their starting quarterback decided he wasn't going to transfer, but disqualified his eligibility. Backup quarterback as well. He's the backup gone. quarterback's gone. Everyone on LSU. <laughs> it's tough sledding there. And then also their head coach is gone too, Ed Orgeron. He was uh, relieved of duty, air quotes. And Yeah, uh, we'll leave the air quotes there. Yeah, and so he's gone. They're playing with a lame duck coaching staff that... Which, on one hand, they have nothing to play for, but on the other hand, they have nothing to lose. So, that it's a double-edged sword there. And it's going to be interesting to see what kind of mentality they come out with. They're going to be flat at the first sign of resistance, or because they have nothing to lose, are we going to see a lot of tricks being pulled out of the proverbial bag? So. Yeah. And that kind of leads us to the, the third bullet point there that you can point up. Yeah, how checked out is LSU? And then inversely, is K-State even invested themselves? For K-State's investment, I think the fact that no one opted out says that, yeah, we're, we're pretty invested. That totally is, agree there. Yeah, the, the city of Houston has really showed out for K-State, which is, yeah. if you just go on Twitter, that, that surprised me. And at least we haven't had any reports of uh, some other team down in Orlando causing problems with local business owners. Shame. They're probably irrelevant, so I don't know. Maybe we should talk it. about it. But Iowa State moment. Yeah, Iowa State moment. Oh, that's what I was talking about. I, I forgot. They're not relevant, so who cares? <laughs> but as for how checked out LSU is, I, I feel like the few people that are playing, I'm not even sure if they'll care. It depends on how good their relationship is with the interim. But even then, if they do have a good in, like relationship with him, they're not. He's not going to be there. Why do they care? Yeah, and I'd imagine there's probably a few guys in this game that are going to get a shot. They're going to get a shot to play that they maybe play on entering the portal as well. They just haven't done it yet because they want to get a little bit more tape out because maybe they haven't gotten to play much. So it's going to be very interesting to see because this, there's going to be a lot of conflicting mindsets I think in this game for LSU between people that. They don't care because this coaching staff is on the way out and they maybe aren't enthusiastic about the new one. Then you also have people that may have not gotten an opportunity to play in the past that now that they have one, they may want to prove themselves on the field against a quality opponent like K-State. So I think we're going to get a mixed bag in terms of motivation from LSU because I think there will be people that are a little bit more checked out, especially if they slip early and get down. But... There's still going to be people there that care, but I think ultimately it's going to come down to who punches first and who punches hardest. And if K-State can deliver a punch, if they can deliver an uppercut in the first quarter, then I think they'll lay down. Yeah. Which leads to the next point of who's even starting at quarterback. We don't even know this, and it's two days before the game. We may not even know it tomorrow. It, it'll probably just be something we kind of figure out when the game starts. Yeah, uh, that's where I'm at. I've like been uh, personally speculating about it. I, I've just kind of decided to stop doing that because I just don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. The only person that knows is probably LSU's head coach. But even then, he may not be sure either. 
because it all comes down to Nussmeyer and if he gets a waiver. Because if not, then I mean it's it's a dealer's choice on who plays quarterback for LSU. Honestly, yeah. at that point, because it's either Howard. That would be interesting if they paid us. I'd allow it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I. I don't know what else to say about that because we have touched on the quarterback situation for LSU a bit. But if nothing else, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And then the next point you have. Yep. Can K-State keep from beating themselves? And because for all of LSU's faults, which there are innumerable, they are not an oft-penalized team. They are tied for fourth fewest in the FBS and tied first for fewest penalty yards per game. So that's that's a, that's a really great question. Can K-State stop from beating themselves? That's something that I, I will... The optimist in me wants to say absolutely yes, but the other part of me is saying there's going to be a few penalties because K-State's going to be jacked up. I feel like this is going to be a game that Kleiman wants really, really bad, not only because it's a bowl win, but because he really wants another eight-win season, because eight wins looks a lot better than seven. Yep. And it, it it's it's going to be a game where K-State's going to be jacked up, and whenever you're jacked and playing on pure emotion, you're going to inevitably make a few mistakes. You're going to hold, you're going to jump off sides just because your adrenaline's pumping that much. But... That being said, I think K-State gets more penalties, but I don't think it ultimately costs them the game. Yeah, I I think you might be right. I think there will be some penalties on early drives, but I think that they'll figure it out and they'll settle in uh, for the same reasons that you said, because there's, there's a lot riding on this game perception-wise for the program. Uh, and like you said, eight wins. Eight and five looks infinitely better than seven and six on a record despite it being a one game difference same thing with like eight and five to nine and four like so and it, it's four to ten and three yeah like like once he gets about double digits it's not as big but you know like in that seven eight nine win range the the, the difference is astronomical because iowa state you know they finished seven and six and you know that well, to be fair to them, that doesn't tell the full story of their season because they they play some teams pretty well. Seven and six, though, that's really mediocre. And K State finishing seven and six, that's mediocre as well. Despite the fact that we know this team had the potential to be a lot more than seven and six, eight and five. Going into the season, if you told me we finished eight and five, the bowl win over an SEC team, I would have been happy with that. Like, taken it. Yeah, I would have taken it. Like, I would have changed who we lost to. Yes, right. I, I agree. Like, I I, I, I would have wanted more from this year, but I can live with 8-5, and five, especially considering that we have some great transfers coming in. We have I th- what I think is a very good recruiting class, a very slept-on recruiting class, and for the most part, an upward trajectory for the program. So that's, that's getting a little bit off track there, but... It's all good. I'm, Next up, does K-State take advantage of an O-line that isn't great? I, it, it, it just says isn't great in pass protection, but they're just not great. <laughs> yeah, they're not a great line, regardless. Um, I think so, yeah, because even when 
the offense has struggled if there's one thing that this team has been able to do pretty consistently it's been defend the pass whether that be from pass rushing or just from coverage and i i i think that k-state's going to be able to take advantage of this offensive line the lone exception will be if they just go straight wildcat and run downhill right at us and even then i think we can adjust and still put forward a good fight but i think it'll just change from domination to light success in that regard because their offensive line still isn't great they just have big bodies and pass protection though in a k-state base set like a 335 bring a little pressure i really like our chances there and Felix NUDK Uzama, he's been chasing that elusive 12th sack this year to break the school record. And I I think he'll hit it this game. I think he'll finally get it. But I don't know. Let's wait and see. Yeah. Yeah, and then we can take on this next question. And this is a really interesting one that I have been wondering about a lot. And it is, how does Colin Klein do in what could be an audition for the offensive coordinator job? We talked about this on Settling the Score for a little bit. Shout out to Colin Settle. Great guy. Great show. Settling Great the show. Score. Go check that Great out. Great show. But I am cautiously optimistic. But the main thing that I'm looking for is not the game plan going in. It's if that game plan doesn't work, do we adjust? Because if he does adjust, I can make myself okay with him being the OC. But if he does not adjust or adjusts too slowly, I will have massive questions and very low expectations for our offense next year. Yeah, I, I'm i not sure what to expect from Colin Klein. I, like you said, am cautiously optimistic. I think Klein has the potential to do a lot to reinvigorate this offense without necessarily changing a ton simply by being more creative with his play calls like we don't have to get away from the system that Kleiman wants to run without being creative and i think that klein there's there's a few wrinkles i think that he can add the occasional trick play the maybe a faster pace occasionally like we get a big play hurry up and try and get to the line quick and catch him off very simple things that I think can make this offense a lot better. And among other things, like in terms of preparation, and then like you said, the biggest one, adjustments, in-game adjustments. I, oh my, if you can adjust in-game, I'd hire him on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's kind but, of the lower expectations are. Yeah, but Klein, I'm open-minded to him being the offensive coordinator. I'm very interested to see what he does. I'd like to see us conduct a large surge and cast a wide net for this job but if Klein ends up being the best candidate best bang for our buck and overall the best fit so be it especially if he calls an impressive game yeah uh we're an air raid team under Colin Klein uh, that would be very interesting (laughs) and very unexpected yeah we're also going to hire Joe Brady and it's going to be uh Joe Brady Colin Klein co-offensive coordinators next year K-State to the natty I would allow it. <laughs> Once. <laughs> I, I truly would. I would allow it. And the the final one, it, this is just kind of a, a joke question. Can K-State recover from losing the Rodeo Bowl? No. All right, that's enough. We, we can, we're losing the bowl game. 
I will say, unironically, when I saw that we lost the rodeo bowl, I was actually. I was, I was like, I was upset. I was angry. What is the point of being an ag school if we can't win the? Like, are you kidding me? I mean, being fair, I think some of our representatives were Deuce, Shane Porter, and then like two other guys. Now Shane Porter, I could see being good. He's a Texas kid. I think he could be good at this. Like, but guys like Deuce, I mean, he actually he might be good at it as well. He's a Texas kid too. But I don't know. Point is, is I'm very disappointed in the team and their performance in the rodeo bowl. I think anybody who was a part of the team that lost, I think they should have their scholarships revoked immediately. <laughs> Deuce gone forever. Uh, Deuce, it was a great run. Wow, you really embarrassed us out there in the rodeo bowl, so we're going to have to ask you to leave. Dylan White's the new starting running back. That would be an interesting shift. <laughs> uh, that'd be one direction to go. It, it would be a direction, I can't argue with that. Yeah, Jordan Shipper's uh, Dylan White duel. The two-headed monster out the backfield. There's some real gym rats, huh? <laughs> but, yeah. Now we can go into the projected offensive and defensive MVPs. Starting off with offense. I'll go first for offense. You can go first for defense. I think the obvious pick here is Deuce Vaughn, given the poorest run defense of LSU. And also the fact that both of their starting linebackers are gone. And I... I would take this K-State offensive line minus one piece against this defensive line any single day of the week. And that one piece, I feel like, will have a good day just because of how much he has to play for now. But Deuce is my pick for offensive MVP of the Texas Bowl. I'm going to go Skylar Thompson, mainly because I am emotional like that. And I want Skylar Thompson to have a great send-off because... I know that he's had an up-and-down career. He's had some very high highs. and But regardless, he was a quality starting quarterback for K-State for the majority of his time. And when he wasn't, a lot of it can be attributed to play calling, no matter what regime it was under. Although he has had his fair share of lackluster performances, Skyler still is, in my book, a K-State legend just because of his resiliency and his K-State. He's on to the core. I want Skylar Thompson to throw for like 800 yards and 20 touchdowns in this game. Although I would settle for 302. <laughs> I, I think Skylar is the offensive MVP in this game. Just because I, I think it's going to be an emotional day. I think after kind of not handling the emotion against Baylor, I think he'll, I think he'll understand it a little bit better, settle down, and be able to play a quality game against LSU. All right. And who's your defensive MVP? That would be one Russ East. I think that Russ East also has a lot to play for because he's, I think right now he's a fringe draft pick. He had a excellent season for K-State defensively. Had some of the best pass breakups I've seen in a long time at K-State. And he's the sort of guy that I think could end up getting drafted or be a very successful free agent. But having a successful day against LSU, even if it's against like the eighth string quarterback or whatever, I th I think Russ Yeast could have a really nice day, and he has a lot to play for, to being his last college football game, unless he's able to discover an extra year of love, really help us next year on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. But I'm, I'm rolling with Russ Yeast. All right. And then finally, the score projections. I'm done conscientiously objecting. 
who's your defensive MVP ace? Oh, wait. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> no one. Go home. You lose, sir. But Aww. I my defensive MVP pick was Deuce Green. I I always, I don't feel like you can ever go wrong with the dueling deuces as your offensive and defensive MVPs. No way. Yeah. They're they're easy picks. I yeah, mean, I, they're they're the two best players on either side of the ball. So, right. yeah, Felix on defense, but either way, yeah. It's I feel like Daniel Green is going to have himself a day. And finally, score projections for real this time. I'm done conscientiously objecting. I think that this is going to be a hard-fought game, and I don't think that this will be a very high-scoring game, mostly because of the matchup between K-State's receivers and LSU's defensive backs, which is something we didn't talk about, but that's a matchup to watch. But despite all of that, I think that your Kansas State Wildcats pull out a victory 21-17, to and Skyler has the send-off that senior night should have been for him. The first game of this year was at a dome in Texas, and the Cats won 24-7 Stanford, an out-of-conference opponent. I think this game will finish 24-7 in favor of the Cats, as they are finishing their season in a dome in Texas. I think the season comes full circle. They dominate a struggling out-of-conference program, get a satisfying victory, have some performances to write home about, and the Cats right off to the sunset. Skyler Thompson takes off the helmet one last time and probably cries. Oh, he's definitely crying. I might he is cry. 100% crying. He is I absolutely might, crying. I might cry. I will be very sad. Grown, grown men can cry. Don't let anyone tell you differently. But, I'll allow it. I'll allow it once. Uh-oh, we may, we may have upset an old who listens to this. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that pretty much wraps up the preview, I, I will get it right again, for the upcoming Texas Bowl, which will be happening tomorrow upon release of this episode. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. If you want to reach out to the show in any way, we are at Aggieville Cats on Twitter. That's capital A, capital A, and capital C in cats. If you want to email us, we are AggievilleAlleyCats at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on a more personal note, I am at ACEdward00. I am at Connor Balthazor, capital C and capital D. You mean capital B? That's what I said. You said capital not... B. Oh, I said B. It might have sounded like D, but I tried to say B. I might be a little stupid, though. It's okay. We're all a little stupid. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to support us on a more financial note, we're always looking for sponsors. But if you want to get something in return, please feel free to visit our official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store where you can buy things such as Neon Alley Cats and Play Sandstorm Cowards, which I actually did at the Oregon game and we were very excited about it. That was so much fun when we got on the the Jumbotron late in the Oregon game when they actually played Sandstorm, Play Sandstorm shirt on. Yeah, that was nutty. You You see, that's why you should buy a Play Sandstorm shirt and wear it to basketball games in case they actually play it, and you can be on theme. Yeah, exactly. Or you can just buy a flag, spread it buy throughout f- the student section. Yeah, wonder who would do that mm. at a particular upcoming game. <clears throat> wonder who? Mystery. Real shame. Real shame we don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, no, we'll never know, I guess. Yeah, never. 
Anywho. But that, but that wraps up this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Thank you all for listening. And again, uh-oh, I messed it up. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alley Cats.